Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Stanley Kubrick season. Full Metal Jacket. We played fair and we worked hard and we're in harmony. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Forever let us hold our banner high, 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 high. Boys and girls from far and near, you're welcome as can be. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. And this is the one that I uh, grew up with. I think it was my first... Now, the first Kubrick I would have seen would actually have been 2001 at a ridiculously young age. I know I saw The Shining when I was about 12, so I think Full Metal Jacket would have been when I was 13 in 1993. Then Doctor Strangelove and Clockwork Orange in my mid to late teens. Eyes Wide Shut when I was 19. And Barry Lyndon, just now. But of that lot, Full Metal Jacket was the one I watched several times and actually got to know the mechanics of. Uh, but the last film that Kubrick made in his lifetime, because Eyes Wide Shut was released post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Basically, he made The Shining in the very, very early 80s, then Full Metal Jacket in 87, then Eyes Wide Shut, and was dead before it hit the cinema. Mm. And that was 20 years. So he'd been kind of not sure what he was going to do for quite a while. This was the uh, the winter of his uh, career. Mm. And the film begins with every Marine being depersonalised as they have their heads shaved to make them all ostensibly identical. Kiss me goodbye and write me while I'm gone. Goodbye, my sweetheart. Hello, Vietnam. America has heard the bugle call. So uh, it's a film about a bunch of recruits uh, for Vietnam. It was filmed in England so deceptively. The whole place looks like Vietnam should look. Except once you told me that where it was filmed, I started seeing recognisable patterns. Not any like specific... Cambridgeshire. Yeah, Cambridgeshire and the Norfolk Broads, both yeah. areas of which I know reasonably well from my childhood. And although I didn't recognise anything specifically, things like shapes of riverbanks mm. and, and the type of trees that you can see in the distance suddenly kind of sprang mm. into being. It's a two-parter movie. Uh, the first part uh, is on Paris Island, uh, where they're being uh, trained by the vicious abusive gunnery sergeant Hartman played by the now dead Arlie Ermey uh, who had been in the army before mm. and uh, effectively just brought this stuff in and improvised the shit out of it and Kubrick went crazy when he saw him doing it he was like that's perfect do that again and again and again and he was like right you, you want me to do that again and again and again <laughs> yes that's how I operate well I'm going to change it don't change it I am gunnery sergeant Hartman your senior drill instructor From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? 
Sir. Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. If you ladies leave my island, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. But until that day, you are pukes. You are the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. Because I am hard, you will not like me. But the more you hate me, the more you will learn. I am hard, but I am fair. There is no racial bigotry here. I do not look down on niggers, kites, wops, or greasers. Here you are all equally worthless. And my orders are to weed out all non-hackers who do not pack the gear to serve in my beloved corps. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sir, yes, sir. What's your name, scumbag? Sir, Private Brown, sir. Bullshit, from now on, you're Private Snowball. Do you like that name? Sir, yes, sir. Well, there's one thing that you won't like, Private Snowball. They don't serve fried chicken and watermelon on a daily basis in my mess hall. Sir, yes, sir. And he bullies a uh, uh, recruit named uh, Leonard Lawrence, uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And this is D'Onofrio's best performance for me. He's the most vulnerable and fragile uh, that I've ever seen him. Ever since then, he's been kind of a smirking villain. Hmm. Or or this giant angry baby in uh, uh, Daredevil as Hmm. uh, Kingpin. Yeah. But yeah, he's this just this, this wad of a boy. Uh, who clearly has never done anything physically strenuous in his life because every exercise wrecks him. And he gets on Hartman's bad side to begin with by laughing at the words he's saying because he's nervous and it's blackly humorous. Ali Omi is actually being really fucking funny in terms of just the the shit he's coming up with. Mm. What's your excuse? Sir, excuse for what, sir? I'm asking the fucking questions here, Private. Do you understand? Sir, yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? Sir, yes, sir. Are you shook up? Are you nervous? Sir, I am, sir. Do I make you nervous? Sir. Sir, what? Are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine. I didn't know they stacked shit that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir! Bullshit, it looks to me like the best part of you ran down to cracking your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. But then uh, Hartman decides to make an example of him and bully the living fuck out of him to try to whip him into shape. He then passes him over to Matthew Modine's Joker and says, you're fucking responsible for him. And then when that doesn't work, he passes Leonard over to the entire unit and says... Not so much you're responsible, but every time he slips up, you're going to suffer for it. So you're going to end up doing press-ups while he just sits there with his thumb in his mouth because I make him. And he knows this will make the unit hate Leonard, and they beat the shit out of him with bars of soap at night. And that's the real turning point for Leonard. He ends up weeping and screaming in the dark because... It's one thing for Hartman to hate him and bully him and beat the shit out of him. It's one thing to let people down and have see the looks in their eyes. It's quite another to feel this vicious physical attack from everyone. Just feel their frustration and disappointment and, yeah, probably hatred from some of them mm. in that. That is the point that breaks him and lowers him to beyond nothing. And it's that that makes him snap and end up shooting Hartman in the toilets and then himself. Something which Joker bears witness to 
blames himself for on some level, but never thinks about again. Yeah. And that, that is kind of my issue with... Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Right. I mean, first off, the, the first half is incredible. It's tight. It's strong. Meticulous. It's meticulous. It's superbly Very performed. Pacey. It's weighty. It it is incredibly impactful. It feels incredibly real mm-hmm. as well. He yep. brings an authenticity I, to it, which is frightening. I have to say, it's it's never something that's explicitly discussed. But the way D'Onofrio is playing him, it seems apparent to me that um, Lawrence has He's on the spectrum. Uh, I, I wouldn't even want to speculate on what issues he has, but he seems to have some kind of uh, learning disability or or something that he doesn't he doesn't fully comprehend what's going on hmm. in the environment that he's in. And frankly, he's the, a child. Exactly, the number of people who end up recruited and in the military in America who don't really know what's going on. I would guess is higher than it ought to be. The tone of it and the the emotional punch that comes from how the characters all interact with each other. That some of the language is a little bit hard to contend with, especially these days, because there are bits that are incredibly racist and very homophobic. And they were incredibly racist and homophobic back in 1987. Yes, yes, I realise that. And they were incredibly racist and homophobic back in 1960, whenever. It's Seven. actually set. Um, but the, the point being that that is um, it kind of adds to the, the impetus of it. And honestly, I think in this particular context, it's worth it and it works. The second half is a completely different movie. You think? That's what it feels. It feels to me like this is two films back to back. This is the story of Joker. Here was his training book. And here was the sequel, which was never quite so well received, mainly because it's it's nowhere near as as um, significant in terms of what it's getting across. Hmm. What it seems to be getting across in the first one is, if you abuse men, this is what happens. Yeah. Seven, six, two millimeter. Full metal jacket. in here and catches us we'll both be in a world of shit I am in a world of shit so there's a uh, a distaste on uh, Kubrick's part for the treatment that these men are undergoing. And he doesn't seem to be a subscriber to the, this will toughen them up. Yeah. And honestly, this is some, this, I mean, the, the extent of it will obviously vary from person to person. But this kind of shit happens in any environment where you have groups of particularly boys or men... But any environment where you have groups of people who are being looked after in the absence of their parents, there is, to a greater or lesser extent, in 
the military, in prisons, in, in boarding schools. It seems to encapsulate that sense of if you put people in an enclosed environment and put someone in charge of them who is entirely focused on outcome rather than process and how you deal with those people and how those people feel about how they're being dealt with, this is the shit you end up with. And Hartman's... Pure behaviourism. Hartman's insane. Yo, He's out of his fucking yeah, gourd. But, he holds it together in a kind of, we're going to get this done, but... Uh, at the one point he's talking about um, snipers and he mentions Charles Whitman and Lee Harvey Oswald and uh, how they were able to very effectively in Whitman's case kill a bunch of civilians from atop a tower mm. with a rifle and in the case of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald although he doesn't mention the help he would have gotten from the grassy knoll from a bunch of CIA agents he does commend him for this miraculous magic bullet skill and there's this weird note of pride in his voice for these men who respectively went on a killing spree and robbed us of one of our best presidents. Notably, Charles Whitman's father was an admitted authoritarian. He was also an accomplished marksman and avid firearms collector who demanded absolute perfection from his children and would physically abuse them if they failed to meet these standards. Whitman eventually cracked and killed a total of 17 people. And as I said, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman shows a glow of pride as he describes this achievement because they learned or at least honed their skill in the Marines. That's insane. That is, that is someone who sees the men who become soldiers as merely tools. Mm, yeah. There is, a, there is a flip side to that story uh, in one of my favourite films of all time, which is A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. which is the aftermath of somebody being dealt with by their squad. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean a code red? And yeah, you're goddamn right. I did. They don't. They don't call it that in um, Full Metal Jacket. So I don't know how official that term is. Although they specifically say in A Few Good Men, that's just what we call it round here. They get the squad to deal with the the men without the officers getting involved and it having a tragic outcome. Hmm. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married going to the chapel and we're gonna get married gee i really love you and we're gonna get married going to the chapel of love so yeah it's an incredibly impersonal brisk uh, opening where you you don't really get to meet anyone it's a, it's lightly narrated by joker but most of it is just gunnery sergeant hartman shouting and barking orders and taking out far too much aggression on lawrence whom he calls goma pile which again will be completely lost on new audiences who don't watch sergeant bilko or as it was known, the Phil Silvers show. But it is notable that D'Onofrio in the uh, toilet scene uh, wears the Kubrick face. It's the same face that Jack Nicholson has in The Shining when he's just, like, glaring forwards. It's the same face that Malcolm McDowell has in Clockwork Orange where he's just glaring forwards. And it feels like uh, Kubrick was like, right, do that. That's brilliant. That'll shit him up. Mm. There's nothing more to it. It's just that and intensity. You're looking into the eyes of a man unhinged with no soul beneath. Mm. One of the reasons that the whole snowflake narrative doing the rounds at the moment where people are mocked for expecting to be 
handled with care. That seems to be the, the given. Sorry, handled with care. Asterisk. Given any measure of support yeah, whatsoever. Absolutely. It, it's worth bearing in mind that if you, if if somebody takes that position, oh, you're all just snowflakes and you've, you you can't contend with real life. This is the kind of shit that we're trying to overcome. Because although this isn't real life, this I, is a madman's version of real life. I know, I know. That that that's the thing. They need to be able to look at this and go, oh, this is just systematic abuse. Mm. This isn't real life at all. Absolutely, we've just made ourselves do this because we believe it will create killing machines. Yeah, but institutional living is not normal. That's not standard human. We shouldn't live like that. And if we do have to live like that, we certainly shouldn't be treated like this. The first part of this movie needed to end in the second half of Jarhead. Mm. Jarhead is the better version of the second half of Full Metal Jacket. The more compassionate, sort of like a human made this version. Mm. The second half of Full Metal Jacket is Joker, this kind of cocky guy now. He's just sort of a wise ass in the field in Vietnam who wants to be in the shit, but he's just basically hanging around Da Nang hiring prostitutes. We get to meet three women in Vietnam, and they are mostly the mouthpiece for the country. Like, one guy, one pimp speaks to them, Mm. but it's mostly these three women. Two of them are prostitutes, one of them is a sniper. Yeah, and she doesn't speak much. She just says, shoot me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, First prostitute, what did you think of this rather famous scene? Um... Hey, baby! You got girlfriend, Vietnam? Not just this minute. Well, baby, me so horny. Me so horny. You keep lying. Me love you a long time. You party? Yeah, we might party. How much? Fifteen dollars? Fifteen dollars for both of us. No, eat you fifteen dollars. Me love you long time. Me so horny. Fifteen dollars to buku. Five dollars each. Me sucky sucky. Me love you too much. Five dollars is all my mom allows me to spend. Okay, ten dollars each. What do we get for ten dollars? Everything you want. Everything. Everything. You keep playing. Well, old buddy. Feel like spending some of your hard-earned money? And you keep thinking. You know, half these gookwars are serving officers in the Viet Cong. The other half got TB. Be sure you only fuck the ones that cough. I noticed this time that Kubrick made absolutely sure that this girl was coughing as Joker said that last bit. She's got TB, like a tragic Victorian heroine. Or a badger. <sighs> Uh, I, I, it's difficult to really um, view it without the fact that it's been done so many times, as in like people have done this bit because everybody thinks it's so hilarious. Yeah, frat boys took this very much to heart and were like, like this is how we now see all Asian women. Yeah. Not all frat, hashtag not all frat boys, <laughs> but enough of them. Mm. Um, nice one, Stan. It's it, yeah. The, it does seem to kind of feed into the uh, the stereotypical view of um, countries from that region of the world and what you might expect to be able to demand when you get there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, didn't like that bit. <laughs> I'm not going to play you the clip of the second scene. Suffice to say, that prostitute barely gets to speak. Her pimp does most of the talking. The American soldiers throw a lot of racism around, making me wonder if we take this scene apart, what does it even achieve? And then human toilet Adam Baldwin shows up with a line to top them all. A lot of this is what stereotype do I have in my bag that I can throw at my camera? Yeah. Adam Baldwin being in this second half a lot makes it's it hard. harder. It's makes really it harder. hard. Yeah. Apparently Schwarzenegger was in the running, but he went off to do The Running Man instead. He, he was better. really in I the running. I would have liked him better. I think the, one of the downsides of Animal as a character is the fact that he's introduced as this is the guy you want behind you in the shit he's horrible he's mean he's incredibly unpleasant he's a colossal racist yeah but under fire he won't run away he will stand there and back you up and i i mean i personally would say that's not good enough i'd like more from my definition Mm. of a decent human being um but it's it's almost like if hartman's tactics had worked with Lawrence, this is what Lawrence could have been. Hmm. Notably in the book, before he dies, Gunnery Sergeant Gerheim, renamed Hartman for the film, tells Lawrence that he's proud of him, after Lawrence just shot him, because he's succeeded in turning him into a killer. I mean, the fact that Pyle then turns the gun on himself, in both versions, somewhat steps on that. This is the clarion call of abusive fathers. And I'm curious as to why Kubrick changed that, as it seems to entirely corroborate the message of the first half of this film, which is that while you are building some of these men into killing machines, you're also breaking many of them. The second half is mostly pointless. They're out there wondering why they're out there. Joker wonders out loud, what are we doing? What are we doing out here? And... They just kind of, they they engage in a couple of conversations. They completely dehumanize every Vietnamese person in the land. They imply that the Viet Cong are less hostile to them than the civilians they are trying to rescue. Mm. Something which I'm sure was very true for a lot of enlisted men. They sit in a helicopter while another man shoots farmers with his M60 machine gun, including women and children, under suspicion of being spies. So there is your cause and conclusion. On a side note, this soldier, real-life Marine, and had auditioned for the part of the gunnery sergeant, but ended up losing out to the nuclear firecracker that was Ali Ermi. So while I say the second part is largely pointless, I mean it parallels the Vietnam War. That doesn't necessarily make it boring. They engage in a couple of uh, action skirmishes, one of which goes really wrong and ends up uh, uh, being a horrible sniper bait uh, scenario, which ends in this female sniper getting shot uh, by Joker with a handgun after she's begging to be finished off. This is his first confirmed VC kill, and it's not the point of pride he hoped it would be. He, in fact, looks thoroughly sickened by the experience. Interestingly, in the book, when Cowboy's telling them all to hold back, he runs out himself to finish off the two men being used as bait, gets wounded, and Joker, faced with the sight of his last friend from Paris Island in a state of mortal desperation, does what, in all practicality, should have been done, which is to shoot him dead from their vantage point and then pull out. So I feel like if Kubrick changed those two things for a reason, that and Lawrence being told that Hartman was proud of him shortly before the man expired, then it was to dwell with Joker 
upon the business of killing another human being, to be touched by it and thoroughly disturbed. And then they walk off singing the Mickey Mouse Club song, and it cuts to paint it black by the Rolling Stones like it's a Scorsese film. One of the reasons that I did find it difficult to really appreciate this, particularly the second half, is that by the time I saw Full Metal Jacket, I had watched a lot of Tour of Duty. Uh-huh. And Tour of Duty, Used painted black which also the, uses Painted yeah. Black as the, as the closing credits, is um, it was a, a TV series from the 80s. 80s? Yeah, 80s. Um, again, set in Vietnam and took so many of its cues from this film, it is easy to see in retrospect, but did it long form with characterization. a far greater degree of characterization, right. compassion and understanding. And so if I was given the choice between the two... You'd watch two I or three episodes of Call of Duty. Duty. Duty so. But it's really hard to find them. I keep looking mm. and I keep not finding them. So. Philosophically speaking, what I was able to glean from the movie is it's better to be alive than dead. Brilliant. The dead know only one thing. It is better to be alive. And at the end, after all of that, he says, I am so happy that I am alive in one piece and short. I'm in a world of shit. Yes, but I am alive. And I am not afraid. Short, by the way, is a term signifying that the individual's tour of duty is almost completed, usually less than 100 days. Short timers carry notched walking sticks, colourful calendars. Most compare the last 30 days in country with their cherry days and become extremely paranoid, not wanting to take risks anymore. If you remember in Aliens, Hudson says he was getting short. I feel like here Kubrick was coming up against the limitations of the book. This was not based on Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. It doesn't have deeper, more stirring observations of the blackness of the human soul, at least not in words. So it feels like he was trying to represent some of that visually and allow you to infer more than was written on the printed page. And that's how it ends. And they're singing the Mickey Mouse Club song uh, in a kind of a... Just to remind you, they are effectively children. Yeah. Tall children who own money. One of the things that Clockwork Orange and, and Full Metal Jacket have in common, and watching them back to back almost, it was... It was weird because I had to keep reminding myself that Kubrick was working in an era where they knew far less about the impact of trauma uh, than they do now. Mm -hmm. And so much of it, I was just watching it and thinking, he's so close, they're so close to the conclusions of these things. How were they talking about the, the consequences and effects of this kind of traumatic experience on people in film at this time and then it it still took them decades to work out hey this is how you fuck people up putting people through (laughs) these kind of traumatic situations because it fucks them up royal i mean obviously kubrick was a filmmaker not a psychiatrist it wasn't his job to figure that shit out but like it's right there also i feel like of all the filmmakers who might have compassion or might film with a sympathetic, humanistic eye for people put through 
undue levels of stress, repetitive stress I might add, for people who might be broken down psychologically, injured physically, and subjected to the rigours of someone else's rigid doctrine in order to shape them into something deemed entirely fit for purpose, Stanley Kubrick may not be your guy. And I, you know, it's, it's irony on the base level, but I like it. You know what I mean? It's real basic irony, but still, you can get a who. It's a who. It's a fucking who. The open country was filmed in uh, cliff marshes and along the River Thames, supplemented with 200 imported Spanish palm trees and 100,000 plastical tropical plants from Hong Kong. Again, the ability to turn England into Vietnam was astonishing here. I, possibly just because this was the first Vietnam film I saw and really paid attention to. I'd seen Platoon already, but I, I, this was my abiding view of Vietnam. Mm, yeah. I, I have to admit, I do like the Oliver Stone trilogy, mm. uh, Vietnam trilogy. Heaven and Earth. Yeah, and uh, Born on the Fourth of July. Right. And it's based on the book The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford. Uh, it was the, the film was going to be called The Short Timers, but it, Kubrick thought that, that would make it sound like it was about people who did only part-time work. So he changed it to Full Metal Jacket based on what this means about um, bullets. One reading of that being that the soldiers get shaped into arrowheads that get fired at the enemy. They are bullets themselves. There is more on the writer Hasford, though. Uh, in 1985, two years before the film was made, Hasford had borrowed 98 books from the Sacramento, California Public Library and was wanted for grand theft there. Then in 1988, the year after Full Metal Jacket, shortly before the Oscar ceremony, he was charged with theft after campus police from California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, found nearly 10,000 library books in his rented storage locker. At that time, he had 87 overdue books and five years of Civil War Times magazine issues checked out at the Cal Poly Slow Library. The materials were valued at over $20,000. This is like, that's a pathological thing. Yeah. Like, he's Joker, Matthew Medine's character, not Joaquin Phoenix. This is what this is Joker's memoirs. Oh. He like he was in Vietnam. This is this was his what happened to him, and the book was what came of it. Mm. If you go to his Wikipedia page, it's literally just a picture of what looks like uh, Rafterman in uh, um, in black and white. That mm. that was him. Okay. Gustav. At some point, Kubrick wanted to meet Hasford in person, but the other co-writer, a man named Hare, advised against this, describing the short time as author as a scary man, and believed that he and Kubrick would not get on. Nonetheless, Kubrick insisted, and they all met at Kubrick's house in England for dinner. It did not go well, and Hasford did not meet with Kubrick again. Soon afterwards, Hasford died. Soon after that, Kubrick died. And that was the end of that chapter. And I, I suppose if it is effectively just based on someone's real-life experiences, it may not necessarily have to have a point. Mm. It's autobiographical, and if, like, every soldier coming out of Vietnam it was, should not be expected to find out the reason for Vietnam and to establish it them, for themselves. They might be able to on the personal philosophical level, mm. but most of them would be either just trying to reintegrate themselves into society or just trying to stave off combat fatigue and PTSD. Mm. So ultimately finding fucking meaning for what they'd just done was uh, lower on the list of priorities. Yeah. Although, weirdly, that's how you stave off PTSD. <clears throat> you find meaning for mm. the things that have happened. 
It is strange that Gustav's problems manifested themselves in, I'm going to take this book out of the library, but I'm not going to return it. And then doing that again 9,999 times. That's astonishing. That's like Bender. You know how he always puts stuff into his uh, chest cavity. Mm. Both Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket have amazing scores and soundtracks. The synth score for Clockwork Orange was by Wendy Carlos, and frustratingly, I can't find her original screen version of Funeral of Queen Mary. I don't think it's ever been released. We've got approximations of it, but nothing with that same impact to it. And that frustrates me when soundtracks are so amazing and you just can't listen to them. You get in the style of. Obviously, there's a lot of classical music in Clockwork Orange as well, and it seems to be Kubrick's intention to make you think of his film whenever you hear that music, which ties in with the themes of the film. Although Stanley Kubrick could not unseat the thieving magpie in my head with his scenes of ultraviolence, from a scene in The Tall Guy, where a young Emma Thompson and a young Jeff Goldblum fuck each other's brains out in a sweet, clumsy, hilarious sex scene which is actually a lot more realistic than most people would like to admit in Hollywood. Though maybe I have learned from that scene that sex is not complete unless you put your ass on buttered toast, play the piano with your head, and spend part of the time shagging in the wardrobe. That one's burned into my brain. Stan can have the William Tell overture, however. But the music for Full Metal Jacket was by Abigail Mead. And there's three moments of real note that bind the film together thematically. One piece called Ruins, where the soldiers are just picking through a city, and a pair of twin pieces called Leonard and Sniper, which bind together Joker's existential horror at the murder he's witnessing. These punctuate the final sequences of both halves, where the score just turns into this sort of grinding metal and groans. It's when they're in the um, the, the head of the, the toilet, and it's just this sort of there's a drip sound in the soundtrack, and it's just. So, uh, of the two films, I, I'd say that uh, Clockwork Orange is a lot more extraordinary. Uh, Full Metal Jacket is one of the Vietnam films. That's fair. And I'm not sure what my favourite Vietnam film is, and I don't think you really have to have one. No. It's a terrible, regrettable period of history when bad things happened. Why should we have a favourite depiction? This is very true. Uh, that said, I think my favourite Vietnam film is the episode of Quantum Leap where mm. uh, Sam leaps into his brother's friend and they're in Vietnam and he's trying to protect him. I've read reviews of Full Metal Jacket that say that especially the second half is not entertaining. And the trailers for the re-re-re-release of Apocalypse Now were boasting incredible new advances in surround sound technology so you can really hear the bombing. And again, I'm just wondering whether being entertained by a war that should never have happened is on my cinematic agenda. There's a throwaway line in Small Soldiers, the Gremlins as action figures film by Joe Dante where the late great Phil Hartman is watching, I think, The Dirty Dozen on his brand new TV system with Dolby Surround. And he mutters to his wife, I think World War II is my favourite war. And that's one of the most incisive throwaway lines I've ever seen. It's almost more succinct than any war film as a statement on how war 
has been commodified into entertainment for the general public. We are so detached from the horror of it. So ultimately, Full Metal Jacket being kind of meandering and pointless, especially by the end, is a great strength, because it indicates something we shouldn't want to ever happen again. Hence the clumsy scene about having a peace sign badge taped to your infantryman helmet, which also has Born to Kill written on it. Joker gives the limp excuse, uh, I think it's something to do with the duality of man, and I don't honestly think Stan could come up with much more than that. So on reflection, my favourite Vietnam film is called Fury. It's a Vietnamese film about a Vietnamese mother who goes looking for her kidnapped daughter and gets involved in a series of desperate martial arts fights. It was made in 2019, and it's set in 2019. It made me realise just how many people think Vietnam is a time, not a place. Alternately, my favourite film about the Vietnam War is allegorical. Aliens. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Again, Stanley couldn't get Wooly Bully tied with Full Metal Jacket in my head permanently because Splash had gotten there first. The highlight of the pop song soundtrack for me, apart from Painted Black, which is magnificent, aside from Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made For Walking, and by the way, if you've not actually sat down and listened to an album of Nancy Sinatra, try that. She's fantastic. Better stop your grooving But the other highlight of the Full Metal Jacket soundtrack uh, is uh, The Trash Men and Surfing Bird. <laughs> Probably made uh, more famous less for this, but more in that there's a Family Guy skit where Peter Griffin won't stop singing it over and over again to annoy his wife. Sharon's looking at me as though I've ever done this to her. Sharon, everybody knows that the bird is the word. How <laughs> everybody's about the bird. It's okay, I'm not about to go to sleep, so it will hopefully have the same effect.
Okay, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's final film. And it doesn't get worse than this. I haven't seen some of the earlier Kubrick films. The ones even he didn't like. Oh yeah, he didn't like Fear and Desire. Haven't seen Fear and Desire, I haven't seen Killer's Kiss, haven't seen The Killing, Paths of Glory. Haven't seen Spartacus, which is considered an absolute classic. I think I just lumped it in with all the other Swords and Sandals films from back then. Uh, I haven't seen Lolita, although I did see the Adrian Lin version, which is fairly sensitively handled, question mark. It's a dodgy film to watch. Have seen Dr. Strangelove. It's okay. I didn't laugh, and it's a comedy. I do like the line, no fighting in here, gentlemen, this is the war room. It was a pretty gutsy film to do during the Cold War. Steven Spielberg has this story of uh, when he was a kid in 1964, as a teenager, and he was queuing up outside the movie theater to go in to see this, and his dad drove up and handed him a letter and gravely told him, this is your papers, you've been summoned to the army in Vietnam. And he said, you want to come home? And Steve said, no, I want to watch this movie. And then dazed, he went in with this letter in his back pocket and uh, he uh, was kind of disconnected from the world and completely engaged with Dr. Strangelove and at some point while watching it he forgot and while pondering the nature of war he came outside afterwards and sat down on the sidewalk and remembered that this was in his back pocket. I do wonder what would have happened to cinema had history gone differently. Who else would have to fill Steven Spielberg's shoes? So ultimately, it doesn't matter at all that it didn't inspire me. It inspired Spielberg as a 17-year-old kid. And for that, I am eternally grateful for Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But Steve got to the end of that story, and I suddenly thought... Why didn't his dad go in to see the film with his son in the cinema? And yeah, maybe it would have been too real to watch a film all about war when you're suddenly aware your child is going to potentially die in combat. But if that was the last film my movie-obsessed kid ever saw in the cinema, I'd want to be with them. Steven Spielberg season, coming to School of Movies in 2020.
But back to the messy business of Eyes Wide Shut. I saw this in the cinema. It's the only Kubrick film I saw in the cinema, principally because the last film he'd released before then was 1987 and I was seven years old. It's kind of interesting. Steve got Stan stepping up and away from the studio system to carve out his own career, and I got the epilogue. I saw Eyes Wide Shut at 19, and I was disgusted. I wondered whether I was just a philistine who didn't get the depths of uh, Kubrick, but now having seen a lot of his other films and studied him, uh, and, and now watching it again 20 years later with the benefit of hindsight, I can say with absolute confidence, this is uh, an appallingly bad film. This is aimless drivel. This is baby people jabbing at the idea of relating to one another like adults and incorporating sex into that. This is a sexual odyssey that veers back and forth between leering at women we shouldn't have and generally being disgusted with the whole idea of sex. It is a rotten movie, a turgid, slow, torturous, dull-witted embarrassment the kind of film you and your fellow students make in your first year at film school. This cretinous, alienating relationship drama. It feels both amateurish, yet tired. And I didn't believe that a single person on screen that I was seeing was a human being, except one. Talk about them in a minute. And it was marketed on naughty shots of then-married couple Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman canoodling in the buff. And there was a song, they did a bad, bad thing. I was like, oh, fucking hell, what bad, bad thing did they do? It's less bad than you might have been led to believe. In fact, the person doing the bad, bad thing was Stanley Kubrick making this film. They did a bad, bad thing. 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 You ever love someone so much you thought your little heart was gonna break into? So what's Eyes Wide Shut about, Sharon? Eyes Wide Shut is about 150 minutes long. <laughs> um, no. It's about... A marriage question mark? It's about a man in a marriage who seems confused about what that marriage means when he finds out that his wife eyed up another man in a hotel like a year before the film happens. She gets high on some pot that she's been keeping in the back of the bathroom cabinet and in a moment of bizarrely resentful confession uh, spits at him that she saw this man in a hotel and for a brief moment was so physically drawn to him that she contemplated throwing caution to the wind and having sex with him even though she knew that she would lose her husband, her child, her very, very 
privileged and cushy lifestyle. Um, they live in New York, Manhattan luxury. No, no, no. They keep an apartment in Manhattan luxury. I'm assuming they have a house somewhere else. That's just a part of a snatched conversation that he has with someone else. But oh, fuck. I never realised that was I not their sole residence. I could have misinterpreted Maybe I keep an apartment is I can just barely keep hold of an apartment. Actually, yeah, that might be true. It's the entire premise of Friends. He is only a doctor after all. What kind of doctor is he? I believe he's a tit I don't doctor. No, He sees all sorts of patients, so he seems to be kind of just like a general family practitioner. Uh, but he also does house calls on people who are dying at home. So maybe they just tip really big. I don't know. But for the most part, this film seems like an excuse for Stanley Kubrick to get as many tits out as he can. He turns into Sid James in his old age. Titties. Titties. I made a list of all the sleazy bits where it's like... Sta- oh, there were so many of them. Dirty Stan Blue Movie Man. <laughs> And there's so many, it makes it sound like we're prudish, far from it. When I reel off this list, folks, I want you to know I am not disapproving of all of it. It's just heavily tilted towards the male gaze. Like, very heavily tilted. Or females who particularly like looking at Nicole Kidman's bum. Raises hand. So it starts, the first few seconds, you got Nicole Kidman naked from behind, just taking off her dress, going, some of that, hey, lads, some of that, you're going to get a lot of that later. Then Nicole Kidman on the toilet. You pointed out she was wiping from back to front. Yeah, don't do that. That's bad. Yeah, I, I imagine she did it the way that ladies do, which is front to back. And Stan was like, why are you doing that? That's weird. And she went, well, that's so I don't get a terrible infection in my cooch, Stan. And uh, he went, well, I don't understand what that is. And that's not how I wipe. So you're going to do it this way. I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe that is how uh, it, it, I don't, don't want to go into it, frankly. But either way. Uh, we probably didn't need to see it. So, when they're at the party, there are boob lights. Like, the the lights on the back of the wall are, are in the shape of boobs. And uh, then... Specifically, they are in the shape of the boobs that Joey Donner draws on his lunch tray in... Ten things I hate about, about you. you. I have a dick on my face, don't I? <laughs> then uh, the rich doctor who uh, Tom Cruise is pals with says, uh, got to come up to the uh, bathroom because there's... Because he's uh, got a, uh, a lady friend of his uh, who's uh, overdosed on, question mark, drugs? Uh, she took a drug. She took... <laughs> um, it's apparently coke and heroin. Yeah. Okay. And some champagne. They're very cagey about what she might, what else she might have taken. But it's very important that we see her titties. But also, I noticed about this, she's just overdosed on coke and heroin and almost died, it would appear, were it not for the... Handsome intervention of Tom Cruise, the doctor. Who handsomely intervenes. <laughs> Who handsomely intervenes. But her makeup is fucking perfect. Remember in Pulp Fiction when Mia is lying, puking her face off mm. after ODing on heroin thinking it's coke? Mm. Yeah. Um, o- o- overdoses are not sexy, folks, just so you know. There's also a, pic- a portrait on the wall of a naked Rubenesque lady's bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get naked Nicole Kidman looking in the mirror with those sexy glasses. Yes. Uh, we also and then that shot gets like spoiled by naked Tom Cruise appearing and standing on a box, standing on a box, and you know getting handsy. Uh, then uh, cut to uh, Tom Cruise doing his usual doctor thing, where he's feeling up a girl's titties, 
Uh, then we get Nicole oh, Kidman's can arse we again. Just, I, just, I have to make an observation about this particular bit. Mm-hmm. We do see a parade of various different patients coming through his, um, his surgery, but the young, nubile woman that he examines is sitting, almost posing on the edge of the medical couch with a gown kind of off her shoulders, draped over her elbows... An erotic display. uh, Perfectly moulded boobs jutting upwards towards him. And these, like, sexy little panties that you can see everything. No, no. Do you know what you do when you're in a doctor's office in a fucking plastic robe sitting on tissue paper? You have that robe wrapped around you until... They right up to the point where they need to get to something the robe is covering, and then you just uncover the bit that they need to get to. All he's doing is taking a fucking heartbeat. He could have done that with her clothes on. Agreed. Uh, we get to see Nicole's ass again. Then Nicole in just a bra and skirt. Then we get to see Nicole's very erect nipples through her long sleeve tee. Then uh, Nicole in a slip, getting high, bit of nipple. Um, and this is where she tells him all about some sailor she saw once, as mm. Sharon said, that she thought about having sex with and didn't. She specifically. This is her big revelation. She thought she might want to have sex with. There was zero danger of this ever actually happening. He glances at her briefly as he walks past. Yeah. They have a really long, angry fight, because this is after the party. And she's like, were well, those two girls you're with? Do you, do you want to fuck them? And he's like, <laughs> doing that embarrassed Tom Cruise laugh and grin. And he does that a lot in this. He does. Like, <laughs> he seems <laughs> get me out of here. Very uncomfortable. Oh my god, he's so uncomfortable. <laughs> this is, by the way, the uh, uh, the film that wrecked their marriage and being made to do everything eighty-seven times each. Scene, every take, every line, over and over again till it's hammered flat by Stan the Man. That's enough to end any marriage. Scientology be buggered. Stop saying I'm different. (laughs) Again. To meet different people. I need more. More! Wrong! Fight the power. Fight it with your hugs. Tear down those walls. Okay, you get this wrong one more time, I'm segregating the school. To meet different people. You can't even do it when we're helping you. <laughs> Somebody help her. To meet different people. Stop saying I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so she's like, oh, so you saying that any man who wants to talk to me wants to fuck me? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, well, you're a man. That must mean you want to fuck every girl. And they're just, they're, they're getting into this horrible argument of like, you know, oh, so you want to fuck other people, do you? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. And it's like, this is a perfectly natural thing for people to sort of get into if they're really kind of like young and haven't really had many relationships that are ongoing and long. Mm. But this is a couple in their 40s. You should be over this by now. Also, it's worth noting, by the way, that the the manner in which you're delivering it there makes it sound much more natural and back and forth than it actually was. It's ridiculously stilted. Yeah. It's delivered like they're reading it off fucking cue cards. Or that they had to do it 86 times beforehand and mm. that was the best one in Stan's yeah. head. 
See, I was watching this whole film and thinking, this actually doesn't even look like a Kubrick film. It doesn't have that weird, like, symmetry and that weird, like, everything being completely in the centre and the unusual furniture and placement and music that's actually quite unnerving. He has one bit of music and he leans on it and uses it seven times. And it is irritating. You'll know the one I mean if you've seen the film, folks. But the music at the beginning and the end of the film is like, it's like, it's like an old rabbi going to work. It doesn't fit with the rest of the film. It's not sexy, it's slumping. Humdrum, by design. I'm guessing that's why you had Nicole Kidman wiping her whoopsie-daisy back to front, right in front of Tom Cruise to illustrate how boring their lives are, how non-sexual they are, how nothing is sacred or taboo anymore. It is to convey tedium. This whole film is supposed to be sexy and dangerous, and it's stilted and cold and vapid. And if that's what he wanted, that's exactly what he got. A boring, horrible, wretched, cold film to watch. Not something you could engage with, but an ordeal. Do you, like, is it? Is that, is that really what you wanted? You wanted people to feel bad while watching your movie? About people at all? This and is the movie they were showing Alex in Clockwork Orange. Ah, turn it off! <laughs> Not that piano again! Bam, 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 bam. Stop it! Stop it, please! I beg you! So Tommy Cruise goes out into the street because he is so shocked at the idea that his wife might have once thought about once having sex with someone and not doing it. And he keeps fantasizing about this idea. And, you know, imagining uh, this guy sort of pouring at her. Like, no one's having sex like the sex his wife is having in his head. Yes, with this imaginary sailor. And it's like, you know, the way she's telling him this, and there's a, like, when he comes back later, she decides the prudent thing to do after he's been away for the whole night freaking out is to tell him that she just had a dream where she had sex with countless men and she didn't know how many there were. Now that's a dream that's fairly easy to interpret. She's ashamed of what she admitted to him. She feels like her husband and society at large sees her as a slut. And yet part of her does feel, actually, I would really like to fuck a lot of people. So her brain has said, well, what would happen if you did? And then she's been dwelling on that all night. And also she's literally just woken up in the middle of the dream and in when you're in that state of mind you're not in your best position to assess whether mm. discussing said dream is a good idea sometimes you just need to say it to kind of purge yourself of it well there's many shots in tom cruise's mind of uh, uh him purging himself all over nicole kidman no uh, she's um uh, she's she's being fingered basically and uh then um he goes to a prostitute and she's very accommodating and nice. And I got kind of a Vivian from Pretty Woman vibe off her. She, she seemed quite like new to the idea and a little coquettish about 
the subject of money and what they could do. And her name's Domino and she likes him. And eventually he pays her $150 for doing nothing. And it's, that's, it's fine. It's a nice way of like, she's got sociology books knocking around her apartment. Uh, so it suggests she's using this to pay her way through college. It wasn't until a few days after this film that we saw Hocus Pocus. And I realized, oh my God, that's Vanessa Shaw who plays Allison in that movie. A strong, self-possessed, witchcraft-curious young lady streets ahead of Max, our curtain-haired hero, and she's kind of wonderful in that. And she brings a little of that energy to Kubrick's film. She's one of the only people who doesn't seem like she's in actual pain. And she was probably kind of thrilled just to be working with Tom Cruise. And who wouldn't be? Because if you were a girl in the 90s, odds are he was on your wall at some point. This is before he basically made a name for himself as the guy who holds on to a thing very high up. You know, she's maybe the only nice person in not only New York, New York, not only this film, but maybe Kubrick's entire fucking back catalogue. Mm, yeah. Thinking about it. Possibly. On a wait, Dick Halloran. And then he goes to a bar where his friend the piano player from the party at the beginning is playing, and his friend the piano player tells him about this crazy party gig he's got playing. All sorts of stuff going on in this house, and Tom Cruise is like, well, you got to tell me all about this. I've got to get revenge on my wife, who thought about having sex with someone. I've got to go and think about having sex with some other people, now that I've gone to a prostitute's house and thought about having sex with her. The piano player says that he's just playing away, and then one day his blindfold slipped. And he got an eyeful of the crazy things going on there. And it's like, dude, the whole house would be hung with crotch mist. The guttural oral expulsions of masked dingbats rutting like corpses would have chewed through his repetitive sonorous ivory tinkling. You wouldn't need your sense of sight to know what the fuck was going on. Uh, and he gets told he's got to get a mask, so he goes to Ray Sobeja's house, who's this crazy old Russian, Boris the Blade, Boris the Bullet Dodger, and his dodgy, underage teenage daughter, played by Lily Sobieski, who was 15 at the time, running around in just her underpants with bush showing? Question mark? It's, uh, she has very thin pants on. Yeah. You can see through them. And let's just cut to the chase because I don't want to talk about everything in this fucking film. He comes back there later to return this costume and mask later and these two Japanese businessmen come downstairs with her and sort of go, yay. Eiffel Tower! Eiffel Tower! And, and walk out and it is abundantly clear that they've just been upstairs having underage sex with this underage but girl. Her father is pimping her and yes. he basically then offers to pimp her to Tom Cruise as In well. In not too many ways. I will say, by the way, the amount of agency that the women in this film have, you can count on the fingernails of one nose. And this is something I have as a problem with the entirety of Kubrick's back catalogue. I have no interest in fighting with cinephiles, but I find it really unappealing that there are no stories at all about women. It's always men, and specifically, really, really dull men. Now, if that doesn't bother you, that is absolutely fine. But it bothers me. The only one who's not dull is Alex DeLarge from The Clockwork Orange, and he's a fucking murderer! I doubt very much that Eyes Wide Shut is anyone's favourite Kubrick. It might be. Women exist in Kubrick films, but they are there to 
inform upon the man's journey. I'm sad to say, though, probably the most female-centric of his films, even over Lolita, is The Shining, and that has quite a few problems regarding Wendy. We'll talk about that on the main show. And this is not relegated to just Stan. Some really fantastic directors are all mostly male-centric. Scorsese, Christopher Nolan, one of my favourites, Edgar Wright, Francis Ford Coppola, and his daughter Sophia Coppola is the other way around. So, kind of balances out? And the reason this matters for Eyes Wide Shut is because it's ostensibly a story about a couple that can't connect anymore. If he was ever going to give a woman equal billing, if not priority, it was going to be this film. But we only ever get it from Tom's point of view. If you were going in expecting to see Nicole Kidman go through something, you don't. It feels like an antiquated, one-sided view on humanity. Mm. And if... So many of his back catalogue are about the dehumanisation of man. It almost feels like, you know, if you'd brought women in there, there might have been some balance. It also feels odd that to make stories that are depersonalised and dehumanising and, and, and to, to make these blank facsimiles of people requires you to shut off things that, if left switched on, might reveal that there is humanity there to be found. It's, it's such an odd thing to go seeking that and to self-fulfill that particular prophecy. Mm. I wanted to make a vapid, cold sexual odyssey where you couldn't raise a boner if you tried, yet at the same time it's all about the male gaze. I don't. That's self-defeating for me. Bobbing nipples everywhere. Bob, bobbing up and down. If your point is what men find sexy isn't sexy, you succeeded. But why spend two and a half hours making that point and not showing anything that is sexy? Anyway, Tommy goes to a fucking masked party and it's this miserable ass Masonic ritual. There's a bunch of titted girls in thongs with masks on. There's a lot of music. A lot of incense, a lot of everyone's wearing cloaks, the masks are all creepy. But it's that kind of like super pompous, if you started yanking off masks, you wouldn't see a chin among them type ceremony. Yeah, do you know what it reminds me of? Uh, the theater. Every KKK rally, but more of a budget. Well, okay, all right. But um, the, well, the first thing is it's very frat. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, no, the Theatre des Vampires in. Um, Interview with a vampire. Yeah, but at least they had some dry wits exactly. to them. You're with your turn. And and also there's like there everybody who's watching it. There was a flourish a, to that. There is a it flourish wasn't to it. Deadened. And you're kind of aware Which is ironic since they're dead. Jordan's taking the piss out of how self serious they're taking yeah. what they're doing. But this is purposefully self serious and it's like Kubrick is like really super intense. Hold it. Yes. Hold it. Super intense. Yes, this will make people feel stirring and existential dread. And I'm sure it does for some people, but I just sat there incredulous at age 19, age 39. All I could Bored think... Bored out of my fucking socks. All I could think was those poor, poor girls must be so cold. They had nipples you could take people's eyes out. Oh, my nipples are like bullets. And I that, believe a woman did say that. That hallway was huge and it was all filmed in Britain, I believe, which <laughs> means that heating it was a bitch. They were all freezing. Were the New York scenes filmed in Britain? He built a New York street, apparently. Not worth it. Anyway, um, I mean, worth it if you kept the New York street and rented it out to people. 
Anyway, so uh, Cruise is wandering around. You know what Cameron Crowe did? Used actual New York for mm. uh, Tom Cruise to run along. Expensive. Mm. Um, so Cruise wanders around in a mask that looks like Tom Cruise's face. It's weird. He's double him. Uh, Raid Sabaja had a Tom Cruise mask in his possession. Mm. So yeah, he's looking at this awful, vapid sex where... Um, I mean, the dudes must be on all kinds of Viagra and the women must be using all kinds of lubricants because there isn't a whiff of arousal in the entire party. There's no connection. It's all just blank-faced, pumping, mechanical bollocks. And I I believe this is the one where they actually had to use some, like, digital frames of actresses just to hide penetration shots. They had to just just edge it past the BBFC. For, you know, like because he absolutely had to film an orgy, and it was like if you look at it carefully, it's not even a facsimile of sex. It's like fucking animatronic autoerotica. Like if Walt Disney was a filthy fucker and he made the Hall of Presidents bone. The whole thing's like a dance. It's like a, a stylized um, interpretive dance. Yeah. So kind of like Joker then. Cruz gets uh, uh, pulled aside by one girl in a thong who's like, you must leave here, and you're in great, great danger. And, and he's like, oh? And then he wanders around some more. Oh, she's uh, she's not in a thong. Not yet. Oh, no, no, sorry. Bush out. Bush out, yeah. Asymmetrical bush, I might add. Mm-hmm. Just leave. Funny. That cat just told me to leave. So he looks at some more fucking, and she pulls him aside again and goes, I said, get the fuck out of here. And he goes, will you come with me? No, they're going to kill me. Just, just, just fuck off. And then he gets summoned into the main hall. They say, someone is here who should not be here. Sorry, that is way too fun and theatrical. It's more like, someone is here who should not be here. Will you step forward, please? Mind the gap. And it's so boring. It's so stilt. It's so nothing. There is nothing happening in this film. It's edging forwards incredibly slowly. I don't think they ever cut to the piano player who must be eyeing him and shitting it, going, I'm in trouble now! Better keep playing this baleful non-tune. He comes forward and they're like, Remove your mask. And he does, and everyone stares at him, and it's like, obviously the richest people in New York are looking at him from behind their shitty masks. And he's like, awkward and embarrassed here. Now, get undressed. And if you've ever seen The League of Gentlemen, not The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the unextraordinary British comedy troupe, the get undressed will be hilarious. I don't know whether I sputtered with laughter. I think this might have been ever so slightly before I was familiar with The League of Gentlemen when I saw it at 19, but he's like, <laughs> not really, just a, like actual tackle out. Are you sure? They make him take off his mask and then that girl steps forward with the mask still on and says, I will go in his stead. And they're like, you're sure? Yeah, all right. I don't mind dying for this man. She now has pants on and yeah. you pointed out that that might be because she's up on a balcony. This is a low angle shot. Yeah. And um, Stan knew he would not be able to avoid the labia majora. Indeed. Really what this is is just a key party and someone who turns up who's not low. Cool. Hello, hello, what's going on? What's all this shouting? We'll have no trouble here. <laughs> They're strangers. Not local. He wears a crown and builds new road. 
Tom Cruise goes home, his wife cries at him about the being fucked by many, many men in her dream, which is a perfectly natural, normal dream to have, and uh, feels guilty about it this time, although she's probably also coming down from the pot. Likely. Yeah. What follows is the second half of the film, where he goes picking up after himself, and it is ball-achingly slow. He goes to all the locations, he goes to the front gate of this fucking mansion and at the time we'd only seen one Mission Impossible film now we've seen six (laughs) and I was looking at it and going come on Tom you can get over that gate you're going to have to act better than that to convince me that you can't get over that gate and then a butler comes to the door the gate and gives him an envelope after he's been looking in the camera. Like, there's no time to get anything written out. He opens the envelope and it says something to the effect of, would you kindly fuck off and stop your, like, cease these investigations. And I just muttered, did they just ask Smithers there to pick it off the pile of fuck off letters? Because, like, they, like they fucking printed that shit out in the, in the seconds between him. But again, like, None of this film actually makes sense. We find out later that the girl who gave up her life for him was the girl who OD'd in the bathroom and could barely comprehend the doctor she was meeting who had brought her round. She's giving up her entire life for him. She's agreeing to be killed for him. This is so far beyond the male pornographic fantasy. It it goes all the way round to absurdity. Every woman that Tom Cruise meets like she is just panting to jump on his dong except except Nicole Kidman who's sick of the sight of him frankly and all the posters of this it actually seems to be more Nicole than Tom and it would suggest that this is a two-hander of a movie, that they both have a lot of working out to do and a lot of growth, a lot of talking, a lot of drama's gonna go on, sexual escapades, the story of O, this, that, and the other. Little, you know, things going into things. But it's just this boring dickhead wandering around, bumping into things, being told to kindly fuck off. It's just him and always. She's just at home teaching her daughter maths and watching Mr. Rogers on TV. (laughs) It's no sexual escapade for Nicole. She gets to show her bum in the mirror. That's about it. She gets to think about a sailor once. But she's not thinking about him. He thinks about the sailor more than she does. Yes, he does. He also gets accused of being an F word. Not that one, the other one, by a bunch of drunken youths on the street. So he goes to prove that he's definitely not one of those by not sleeping with a female prostitute. You show them, Tom. Dab on those haters and potatoes. He also gets absurdly flirted with by Alan Cumming. Yep, Alan Cumming's not like... Only, oh yeah, ladies t- and gentlemen, not only is every woman in this film absolutely gagging for a bit of cruise, but so is the gay man, the absurdly camp gay man. Now, I know Alan Cumming does over the top. I've seen him do over the top. He's mm. very funny. But I could not help thinking that this was the kind of performance that he came in and just, like, performed it as a human being would. And then Stan, Stan said, like, could you do it a lot more like... Could you do it a bit like, more gay? <laughs> like, 
Up here is Kenneth Williams. Down here is Alan Cumming. I need you to get up and up and up, Sonny Jim. Like, oh, well, there was this lady who went to the room with two men, if you know what I'm saying. So he finds out that this woman's been killed for him, ostensibly. And at this stage in the film, he's now hearing expository, revelatory monologue and repeating it back to himself in disbelief. I had a dream that I got gangbanged. You had a dream that you got gangbanged? He meets his doctor mate who's like, I had you followed. And he's like, you had me followed. Oh, there you go. So that'll be $4.50. That'll be $4.50. I wonder if he'd learned all the lines he could learn by this point. And they were like, he was like, right, if you want me They're to say They're just seeping else, back out now. People are going to have to quote them to me before I But again, speak. these scenes are shot like a soap opera. They're not shot like a Kubrick film. This feels more like Barry Lyndon. I suppose a little bit. In terms of it's the it's the In that I, I got this very much man. a yeah, fuck this guy. I got that feeling about it. But Barry Lyndon had beautiful light in it. This doesn't. That's true. Beautiful use of light. There's a lot of yellow is it sodium lights, like street light type lighting, which makes everything look mm. orange. And during the bit where he's uh, be, uh, being told, uh, you know, I, I, I was there at the party by his doctor, mate. You know, I, I, this was all an illusion. He's like, there was a fucking dead girl, man. Is that an illusion? I, I, I wish he would. I wanted to see Tom Cruise shout and get angry, but he's like a little schoolboy, like burying his head. But he's burying his head down in his chest when he's hunkered over a bright red pool table, which envelopes his face in red. He looks like gammon. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Can you smell the veggie burgers, yeah. Tom? I am not delusional! I wanted to see Tom Cruise running. I wanted to see Tom Cruise shouting. Or, if you're not going to have him do the two things that he does really, really well, challenge him. This was not a challenge. He just looked embarrassed and bored and uncomfortable and that he wished he could be doing something else. Which makes me feel the same while watching. Aside from the challenge of working with Stanley Kubrick, no one was challenged in this film at all, and I'm sure that everything proceeded as Stanley designed. But if this is what he wanted, I don't know who he expected it to be for, who he was making, who he was edifying with this. I do think... Himself. It is a particular mistake to take a story set in the, what, 20s? That's the thing. This film is based on a book from 1926, written in Austria. Uh, Rhapsody, a dream novel, also known as Dream Story, uh, the German Tram novel. It's by Arthur Schnitzler. The book deals with the thoughts and psychological transformation of Dr. Friedelin over a two-day period after his wife confesses having had sexual fantasies involving another man. In this short time, he meets many people who give clues to the world Schnitzler creates. This culminates in a masquerade ball. It doesn't culminate. That's the centerpiece of the movie slash novella. A masquerade ball, a wondrous event of masked individualism, sex, and danger for Fridolin as the outsider. It's not. It like he's just wandering around looking at it, mm. and it's not masked individualism. It's mar- It's the opposite of that. Everyone becomes anonymous to the point of almost being a factory line. Mm. A conveyor belt of clunge, if you will. I'm sorry. Yeah. But the the sexual mores of the mid-twenties are not 
the, the same, same as the 90s. As the 90s. You can't just transplant one to the other and expect it to have the same impact and, and the same the same character revelations because they're not dealing with the same values. It is a gap between writing and film adaptation of 73 years. And from the sounds of it, Kubrick didn't change much of it at all. Oh, he changed The Shining, but he left this 1926 novel pretty much exactly the same in 1999. That's like if the 1946 film Gilda with Rita Hayworth came out now. Or, and this one's fun, Song of the South. Yes, sir, honey. It happened on one of them zippity doodah days. Now, that's the kind of day when you can't open your mouth without a song jump right out of it. Zippity doodah, zippity My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine. In my way, Have things changed since Song of the South? I feel they have. If the if the focus had been on. Oh, hang on. Did the end? He goes back to his wife. They wander around the toy store while their oblivious child goes, "Mommy, look at this." And he says, "So what are we going to do?" I don't know. I am too tired, and I cannot think about it right now. Don't worry about it. But there is something else we should do. Fuck. We. Should. Fuck. The end. Mm. If, if somewhere in this there had been some actual communication and connection between the two of them... There is had been... a hint at the end that there might be at some point in the future. Honestly, the, the main impression that I got was that things are going to get worse. Yeah. Because she's effectively going, look... Fucking nothing actually happened. I just had a dream. You wandered around and toyed with the idea of sleeping with other people, but didn't. Oh, we found out that Domino, the nice prostitute he had a chat with and paid $150, turned up the next morning with HIV and and then moved away from the city that morning. Uh, He's told this by her roommate, who pretty much tries to fuck him over the breakfast table and then tells him, I don't know how to tell you this. But yeah, Domino, yeah, she had HIV. Everything goes wrong at once. Nobody wants to help me, and I'm dying. You're not dying, Mom. I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. Speaking of which, when Nicole Kidman's shouting at him, she's like, what do you think those girls are thinking when you're touching their little titties? And I was like, expecting him to shout back, I don't know, maybe I hope I don't have breast cancer. But he doesn't shout that back. He's a worm in this film. It's more like he doesn't seem to understand what's going on. Her conclusion is that nothing's really actually happened. That they now. <laughs> Her conclusion is that after two and a half hours of movie, well, yes. nothing has actually happened. Indeed. Correct. Um, but but there's this there's this moment where she's like, you know, y- you went off and did all this stuff. And it was boring. Uh, uh, and I had a dream, and he's like, "Yeah." And and those are two things are as bad as each other, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So we're so square, like, right? We're square now, right? <sighs> All right, fine. If that's what you want to call it, that was basically the impression that I got from her. There's still a complete lack of any kind of connection or communication between the two of them. It doesn't seem like this has has acted as a. Uh, a break things so that you can fix them again kind of interaction. She just seems, like you said, 
tired. Tired of him, tired of the whole situation. Tired of Kubrick. <laughs> Frustrated with the fact that he's decided to continue this conversation surrounded by teddy bears as they Christmas shop with their daughter. Context, Like, dude. there's a time and a place. Also, it seems like she's like, I'll, I will fuck you just to shut you up. There is a little bit of that as well. <laughs> but it just... It, like I said, it was like watching a pair of baby adults just shamble around the, some of the most basic of human interactions. You know, it's, it's jealousy. It, it needs to be confronted. It needs to be dealt with. But the way you're dealing with it is so petulant. But because it's so boring. We don't really see them. They don't interact with anybody else together. So we don't get an impression of what the the life they have that they're trying to preserve is what their combined shared family values are. So it kind of comes off that they they don't want to upset the apple cart because then they lose their magic Christmas tree that is wired into the wall and Tom Cruise turns the lights off with a light switch on the wall. That bothered me. Yeah. You plug Christmas tree lights in. 75%. That's low for a Kubrick. Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post says it's empty of ideas, which is fine, but it's also empty of heat. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times, this is finally a film that is better at mood than at substance, that has its strongest hold on you when it makes the least amount of sense. It never had any hold on me. So when Very was that? It barely made any sense. It's as rich and strange and riveting as any journey he's taken us on. No, it's not. This is the director who took us from the dawn of man to the birth of a new star child. Eyes Wide Shut is a tour of New York living rooms and hooch parlors. It is not the same. They are not comparable. Enough of this, this thing is like this thing. A film so willing to explore the limitations of masculinity, the limitations of heterosexuality, and the limitations of what fantasy looks like for a man who has none, is a decidedly interesting and queer work with which to end one's filmmaking career. I'll stop you there. It's neither interesting nor queer. Getting Alan Cumming to do his most camp performance ever. There was one point where he said, whoops ducky, I believe. And having a scene where you bravely, I'm doing finger quotes here, get a man to dance with a man and a woman to dance with a woman does not make it a queer film. Fuck off with that. And if it's supposed to be boring, it's supposed to be limited, it could be a 20-minute art installation, if that. Doesn't have to be a two-and-a-half-hour butt-destroying knobbissy. That's an odyssey of knobs, none of which we get to see. It was a knockout in the first round. Kubrick's fluid camera work lulled them. Not sure. That's just a fragment, consider revising. In its own tormented way, Eyes Wide Shut is a valentine to monogamy. Ugh. It, it is, in a way. It's basically saying, there's nothing out there for you. It's full of HIV-filled whores and Masonic rituals. They're killing people left, right and centre. Stick with your wife. Okay, I suppose maybe that rabbi music actually does make sense. It's, it's basically saying, just settle down, that's fine. Okay. And when your wife fantasises about having sex with lots of other men, she should apologise. But let's face it, if you were stopping her every night, she wouldn't be having those dreams. Case closed. It's rubbish, folks. It was the worst fucking film he could end on of all of his career. 
It should have stopped at Full Metal Jacket. Frankly, if it stopped at The Shining, I think everyone would have been fine with that. Mm, maybe. So that's Eyes Wide Shut. I would rather see its porn parody, Legs Wide Open. <laughs> at least that would actually have sex where two people connect in some way. Or more. Or more. like a princess and you stabbed me in the back I love you and I did anything for you to just please you and now you betray me how could you love it School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, David Sheely, Kevin Vehi, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gusiga, Greg Downing, Tim Wazenski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Shisham. If you're still with us, thank you very much for sticking through the hard times. I think it's pretty obvious why I didn't want to finish on Eyes Wide Shut. It ends on a sour note. And I think the greatest tragedy is that this was the last film of his career. And it was definitely not one to go out on. Unless you want to count his posthumous collaboration with Steven Spielberg, AI Artificial Intelligence. And we will be covering that for Spielberg season. Now, obviously, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman had issues way beyond just the pressures of filming with Stanley Kubrick. And in fact, uh, when interviewed about him for various Kubrick documentaries, they were incredibly complimentary and said that it was an absolute honor to work with the man. I did still get that desperation behind Tom's eyes that he uh, shows in interviews wherein I've got to see the positive side of this. It has to have been worth it. And we'll talk further about his relationship with actors uh, on next week's show, The Shining, which is really the best way to end this season. Now, contrary to what I said earlier, I did manage to get hold of The Funeral of Queen Mary by Wendy Carlos. But to do that, I had to extract it directly from the DVD for the purposes of this show. What I said still stands. Nobody is allowed to listen to this unless they're watching the film. And that's horrendous because that particular arrangement is astonishing. Really, the music of Wendy Carlos has kept me going through this because she's gifted. In fact, let's listen to some of the score from Tron as I close out. Because I know we're not doing Tron unless someone pays us, and Stanley loved computers. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. 
Stanley's first major job was as a photographer. He was basically Peter Parker. He captured New York during the 40s and early 50s when he would play chess in the park for quarters. In fact, his first big photograph was of a newspaper salesman stricken with ennui regarding the death of President Franklin D. Roosevelt on the 12th of April 1945. And like Steven Spielberg going into Dr. Strangelove, Stanley was 17. And honestly, if you look at his compositions, he went from being a photographer to just digging around for how much it would cost to get a documentary camera together, get a film together, the price of film stock and development. And he looked at it like just number crunching, how he could shoot something and then get someone to pay him for it. His first film, he actually ended up $100 out of pocket, but it was worth it so that he could get it screened. It was called Day of the Fight, and it was a documentary short about boxers in the ring. He decided there was no money in that and went to a feature-length film, which was Fear and Desire, two years later in 1953. And it feels, if you look at his career, that the whole time he was being Peter Parker. He was taking photographs and getting people to pay him for them. He just took millions of photographs. I found that in some ways he and I were kind of similar in our intensity, in our vision of what would be the ideal way of conveying something through our art. We differ greatly in that he sought absolute perfection, tens. And I am always fine with just getting to eight and going, that is fantastic. I am not going to pursue that perfection because of the negative ramifications of that pursuit to myself and to others. That is where he and I differ. Also, he was a major hoarder, and I am very good at getting rid of things. I believe that's what makes me a good editor. Whereas Stan loved boxes full of stuff. He kept every phone. He was an extraordinary man, and I do suggest you go looking deeper and watch some documentaries about him, because there's much to be found in the life and works of this troubling, reclusive craftsman. We'll see you next week. <laughs>